Questions? Any any blanks I missed? Start there. Lee, any blanks? Lee, you're good. F fair enough. That's what I do most. Okay. Two, A, B, and C. Contrast. Cause. Concession. And two E. Conclusion. And D. Cure. <laughs> Contrast, cause, concession, cure, and conclusion. You could just run from all, Jeremy. <laughs> That's right. Um, There we go. There we go. Okay. Okay. Questions on anything? Yo, Bridget. So this is a parenting question. Um, with children who are unbelievers, obviously we're seeing them as they are dead in their yeah. sin, yeah. and they can't fully obey no. Christ and his ways. But we're still trying to train them towards righteousness, and we do see, you know, improvements with their obedience. But um, just sometimes I struggle with that, uh, like knowing that they aren't going to be able to fully obey, or um, their hearts aren't going to desire that. So, yeah. right. And so our our instruction is is for a couple of purposes. One, purely a pragmatic issue for for. for uh, Sanity in my home, there needs to be some order for my kids. Um, so even if they're obeying for the wrong reasons, even if they're not obeying to the glory of God, there's a peace that comes. You're also training them just for living in this world. Who knows how long it will take for the Lord to call these ones to himself. And part of the household code and the household law, if you will, is, is training them. And, and unbelievers can learn how to live lawfully in the world. I mean, you don't want them to go to jail. There's a sense in which people who can't follow the rules in my house will grow up to be people who can't follow the rules in the world who are going to be people who come to bad ends. And so there's even that practical purpose. But the other purpose of the law and our utilizing it is to show them their need of grace. So we're calling on them. So I don't, I can't command my children to delight from the heart to do things. I can put it out in front of them. They will obey. They will quiet down on this floor. They will go to bed when they need to go to bed. And I can make sure they do that. But what I can't do is reach inside and say, Sophie, you need to rejoice in going to bed without your story tonight. Can't do that. I can just tell her, you'll go to bed without your story tonight. <laughs> and plead with her. Darling, see this as a good thing. See this as, as, a, as a kindness to help, to help remind you to, to be more obedient or whatever it is. Um, but that's also why we, we aren't calling on our children, at least I'm not, to obey, uh, and I'm not disciplining. I mean, I'm, I'm showing them all that God calls them to do. It's, it's a tricky thing. Like what, it's sort of like in our world. Not all sin is crime, and not all crime is sin. Not every disobedience to God's rules is going to bring discipline in my home. You know, um, but I do want to constantly show them when they step outside of what God calls them to do. Not because they're ever going to be able to do it. But because I want them to realize this is what God calls on you to do. So when they squabble, you're supposed to love your brother. And some of the uh, the happiest moments as a parent are when my kids 
Um, Sophie's the most recent one to do it. I, I need a new heart. My heart can't do this. Absolutely right. Bingo. Um, so that is part of it. But we are calling on them, and we do. God uses law and structure and rules to, to rein in, to hedge in sin. So civil government does the same thing. So people who would ordinarily do all sorts of terrible things for fear of going to jail don't. You know, and yeah, there'll be children who simply for fear of not being able to play with a game or watch TV or go to bed early will obey. And there's a good that comes of that. The danger as a parent is to think, job done. The child was compliant. You could be raising a Pharisee. So for all those reasons, as parents, we do that. And we also recognize, you're right, they're not going to, even when kids profess Christ, they're not going to obey perfectly. Although now I think you can do a lot more with the counseling and do a lot more with the motivating and, and, and uh, do a lot more with helping them change and grow. Absolutely. But yeah, that, in many respects, we are a God proxy for our kids. All I mean by that is we're the first authority they're going to encounter. We're the first, first lawgiver they're going to encounter. We're the first father or mother they're going to encounter. And so as we teach them about who God is, in many respects, they're going to jump from who we are in their lives and they're going to say, okay, God is a father. I have a father. I can know something about that. God has rules. Mommy and daddy have rules. So in many respects, we're setting them up to know who God is. God's going to say, I'm something like your parents. Or rather, your parents are something like me. It's bad to get the other way around. So we want to do that rightly, which again gets back to we want to make sure our rule and law in our home is similar or reflects something true about God. If what the kid gets is I get eight chances and warnings and it's not really that big of a deal and sometimes mom and dad care and sometimes mom and dad don't care, you're teaching them all sorts of wrong things about God. And so when you say, well, God is a parent and they plug in all that information that they take from you and well, then he must be like mom and dad. So, so we, that's the other reason, the final reason I'd say about us as parents calling our kids to obey is we are imaging and preparing them to learn about the, the father and the parent and the lawgiver to whom they have to deal. Uh, so anyway, does that get where you're going? So there's, a number, there's a number of layers for why we train and call our children to obedience. Um, and that's, I mean, I think I could even add two or three more to that, but those would be three or four reasons to do that right, right there. But no, absolutely, being mindful, they cannot from the heart obey. Not until they're born again, not until the Lord speaks life into their hearts. My kids are not going to obey from the heart rightly as they ought to until they are saved. But I still call on them to obey. They can externally conform. They can learn those things. Um, yeah. Okay, and then... Um... Obviously, it's only by grace that they're saved, so we're not adding to their salvation with all this, the rules and the training and mm. pointing them to Christ, but that is in hopes that that would lead them to yes. Christ. Yes. So I, don't, I just want to know kind of your mindset of thinking. So remember last week when I talked about the importance of um, how, do you, how do you, you can't make yourself see, I can read the Bible all day long, and I can't make myself see beauty and glory in here. But I can do all sorts of things that invite grace. You know what I mean? Like, there are things God says for parents to do that certainly seem... Like a, parent, a child who's reared in the fear and admonition of the Lord is, is going to be a means... That, <clears throat> this is where it gets tough, because I want to say it's going to cause. It's, it's tricky. Um, the Bible indicates there are things parents do that affect their children's salvation. Determinatively, No. Decisively, no. 
Affected? Absolutely. Absolutely affected. And so um, one of the things, even in the Proverbs, you will save their soul from death. That's a bold claim for discipline. Connected to discipline is you will save their soul from death. Why would you set your heart on them dying? Well, <laughs> so the Proverbs are clearly connecting parental discipline in some sense with the salvation of the child. Now, I would absolutely say not in a final, determinative, absolute sense, but there's something going on. In the same way that um, the Proverbs assume that a, a child can be a cause of shame to a parent. Why? Because usually, not always, there are exceptions, but usually there's a connection between the way the kid turns out and the parenting that took place. That's the assumption. There absolutely can be exceptions. Saul can have a Jonathan. Where did that come from? Right? Um, but the whole logic of uh, such and such a son, like a son who, and then will fill in the blank, is a, is a shame to his mother or whatever, or a pride. The fact that the parents can, children can be causes of pride or shame to their parents. The assumed connection is some causality, right? Um, this is part of the reason why the qualifications for an elder is, is the children in the home, how they're behaving, and for deacons as well, is because there's an assumed connection. I can't make my child inwardly love God. I ought to be able to make my kid obey the household code. I ought to be able to make my kid, you know, do those things. And if I can't, that says something about me and my, my fitness to lead. So it's, it's difficult because you don't want, there's two errors. I think one error is if I parent just perfectly, my kid will be saved. That I don't believe is true. Um, let me turn to Isaiah, Isaiah 6. If, if, if there were... If it were the case that a perfect parent would produce a saved child, then God would be confessing his imperfections in Isaiah 1. So in Isaiah 1, God likens himself to a parent with a rebellious child. And if every time a child is rebellious, absolutely, automatically, it means the parent messed up, then God would, of necessity, be saying that about himself, which, of course, he's not saying um, but in Isaiah chapter 1, oh, where is it? Where is it? 3. Hold on. Verse 2. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I was looking right past it. Hero heavens, give hero earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Okay? So even God can say, I am like a parent. Actually, no, flip it around. Parents are like me, because he's the original. He didn't, what can I compare? I'll compare myself to a parent. God created the family so we could learn who he is. And God says, I'm a parent, and I have rebellious children. Okay. But then you can flip to the other side, where you can sort of throw your hands up in the air and say, well, I guess it doesn't matter. Either they're elect or they're unelect. Either they're rebellious. There's nothing to do. Well, the rest of the book of Proverbs and the rest of the Bible insists, no, 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 that's not the case. There's a massive correlation, not total correlation, but massive correlation between parents and parenting and the outcome of children. Massive connection. They're not one for one, but neither are they totally thrown up in the air. And so these are the me- The way I think of it is this. It's like praying for someone's salvation. Well, we read in Ephesians 1, that they were predestined for adoption before the foundation of the world. So my praying isn't going to affect that, is it? So why pray for the salvation of my kids or my neighbor or anybody? Right? That's, I mean, that's the logic people will throw at you. They'll say, why do that? Um, because the same God who, who, who predestined is the same God who works through means. 
And so let, let me use the example of praying for your kid's salvation, right? You say, okay, it's either, it's either an eternity past that God has adopted that child or he hasn't. That very prayer for your child, is that a good thing? Is that something God says to do and pleases him? Yes. Where did that good thing come from? You, did it well up from the, the fountain of goodness that's inside you and me? No. So that very desire to pray for my children comes from God. Once you make that connection, then you start thinking, perhaps God has given me this desire to pray for my children because he intends to save them and glorify himself through answering my prayer. When people are on my heart as a heavy burden, I usually take that as a sign that God's up to something in their life. When I can't get someone out of my mind when I'm just praying for them, I tend to think God is putting this good burden on my heart. It's a good thing. Causing me to pray, causing me to care for someone is a good thing. It's not coming up from Jeremy's self-goodness. God's causing me to pray for them. Perhaps the reason God's putting them so heavily on my heart is he's intending to do something. So once you realize that even the desires to pray for your kids and even the desires to shepherd and discipline and instruct your kids come from God to the degree that you're obeying him, these are good things from him, then you recognize God controls not just the ends but the means. I think it makes a more cohesive picture. But yeah, ultimately, your and my parenting is not decisive in our children's outcome, both salvifically or just in life. But it's hugely influential. Is that, does that, okay, okay. Greg. I just wanted to say that I'm so pleased to hear you encourage parents to uh, utilize the opportunity of discipline or talking to your kids about God's expectation and, and what we are really doing. I'm afraid I was, uh, I was not good at this at all, and pretty much my boys uh, were, were good at uh, responding to dad's rules. Mm. And 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 I look back on that and, and realize, well, that was a, a colossal missed opportunity for me to let them know who God was, uh, what God expected from them. Uh, I mean, they did learn to follow rules, but they didn't learn to do it the right. There could have been more done. Right. I, I just it was a step I left out and 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 uh, look back in chagrin that that uh, I, I wasted that opportunity to to teach them who God was through through interaction with them, even in discipline or in setting of rules. Yeah. And so I'm pleased to hear you encourage everybody else here that 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 still have a chance to do that. I'm afraid my opportunity is past, and uh, uh, I, Jeremy doesn't listen to me at all anymore. <laughs> And let me, let me say this as a, as a tip. This is something I find someone I heard recently say that was very convicting. If, if your kids don't see you confess sin or seek forgiveness in any given month, you're doing something wrong. Or you're far more righteous than I am. You not only should you be modeling God's... Part of the way, you, what Greg was saying, part of the way you make it clear, it's not dad's rules. You want to make it clear like the centurion, I'm also someone under authority. God has called upon me to manage you. And so it's his rules, and I'm under them as well. And when I break them, I too need to repent and confess and deal with things. So whether they're seeing me confess and apologize to Serena, um, if I speak in, in an ungodly way to her in front of them, they need to hear me apologize for that. 
They, they absolutely, if it's public sin, they need to know about it. If, if I'm harsh or short or sarcastic or rude to my wife in front of my children, they need to hear me for, ask forgiveness for that. If I'm, if I'm irritable or short with them, they need to see me seek their forgiveness. Um, and that's another way of making it clear. It's not dad's wrath and dad's law, but the living God's law. And I'm just a steward. And we're all under the same standard. And you can have some great prayer times with your kids. Like, you know, they, they confess something, and it's something you confessed a while back. Sorry for getting angry, Daddy. I know, Sophie. Daddy gets angry sometimes, too. You can pray and ask God to change our hearts, you know? And, and I think that those are the types of things that help make it clear. It's not just, not just you will obey me. And there is a sense which, absolutely, as a parent, you need to require your children in your home will obey you. I mean, if not, it'll be chaos. But it can't merely be that. Uh, it can't only be that. And even how you go about communicating that is going to communicate things. Um, yo. So um, I was reminded of a passage in Deuteronomy where Moses is telling the people about the the laws and the commandments that God expects from them. And in Deuteronomy 4.9, it says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. So, Greg, you still have a chance. <laughs> it's not too late for Jeremy, Greg. Okay. Um, okay. What else? Oh, Carol. Well, I'm just uh, hooking on to what Greg said, you know, about, uh, you know, looking back after your children are grown and thinking, oh, yeah, I made a couple of colossal mistakes. You know, I like that word colossal, you know. And, um, but, but what I, one thing I'm thinking of, is that you can always do is pray every day. Mm. And um, I'm thinking of that, that um, new song we learned, Is He Worthy? Mm. That's in the passage in Revelation 5, the golden bowls that are filled with the prayers of the saints. And uh, you can always keep adding to those bowls and um, pray for your children, no matter what age they are, every day. Yeah. Constantly. So. Amen. And let me show you a positive outworking of this in Second uh, Timothy. Turn to Second Timothy. Um, Paul attributes. Well, you'll see what Paul attributes to Timothy. Um, Verse 14, 2 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And we know that's part of uh, Timothy's uh, grandmother, right? Eunice. And so the, the way... The, the way I like to think of it is this. Only God can grant life. Paul uses an uh, agricultural metaphor in 1 Corinthians 3. He talks about his church planting as planting, and Apollos as watering, and God makes things grow. 
So only God can make things grow, but I can make sure there's seed, fertilizer, the soil has been dug up, the rocks have been taken. I can, I can do a lot to prepare the ground to invite God making things grow. And only God makes it grow. But, so Paul can look at his entire church planting ministry in the book of Acts as one big planting of seeds. And he can look at Apollos' faithful teaching and preaching as continued watering. But God makes things grow. And yet, he tends to make things grow through the normal means. I mean, it's kind of like he has in the past sent angels, I suppose. The resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Emmaus. He tends to use the means of evangelism and proclamation of the gospel for the gospel to go out, though. Um, And so those are the means he tends to use. Well, he could save our children however he chooses. He tends to use the means of parents from childhood training their children in the sacred writings. That that seems to be a pretty frequent means that he uses. And, And so we have every reason to engage in that activity, hopefully, yet recognizing he makes it grow. The best you can do as a parent is water and plant and water some more and pray over it and water some more and pray over it. And God makes it grow. But here, Eunice is getting some clear credit for the, the work she did in young Timothy's life. Praise God for that, right? Um, so it's, it's that balancing act of not wanting to take credit for it, but then wanting to throw up our hands and say, well, I guess we have nothing to do with it, then it doesn't matter. Well, no, that's not the biblical teaching either. So, um, okay, more questions on that. Oh, Lee. Well, here's an interesting twist that I've, I've uh, been... Anyway, when God punishes us, and I'm not... When we say discipline, I think often we mean punishment. So let's say what it is, because discipline, I know, is part of... Punishment is part of discipline. Discipline is teaching, whereas punishment is often a tool that we use to teach, which is totally legitimate as far as I'm concerned, no problem. But I'm wondering, when we um, spank or punish or physically hurt a child on purpose, is it reasonable to expect them not to cry? I'm I'm seeing that in occasional cases where uh, parents will say, now let's everybody get control of yourself and this and that and I'm wondering. It, to me, it seems so unnatural. I'll go to, one. I'll go one step down this. We're off topic of here. I'll go one I know step we're off down topic. this, okay. and then we can. I'll rein it back in. I think there's a distinction between crying out from pain and somebody deciding to, you know, lament and tear their clothes and and basically let it be known. What switches from like well the same thing happens to me I hit my hand or my toe ah you know and there's a, there's a there's a there's a outcry um, there's also I'm going to let you know I don't like something and I and I think it's challenging for a parent to distinguish between the two but part of shepherding is okay is my child simply um, expressing pain from anything I tell my kid they're going to bed early they do some crying but there's a big difference between so just the other night. I told them if they didn't have their rooms clean before uh, somebody came over, instead of staying up, they're going to go to bed. And their rooms weren't clean, they went to bed. There were, there were tears. And I distinguished, I, I could be wrong, and so I'm even, it's not even an issue of pain or not. It's just an issue of anguish. You can cause anguish through sending someone to bed early. You can cause anguish through a spanking. You can send ang- anguish, right? Um, I did not discern that my tears and the noises coming from my kids were that of, a, I'm going to just open up my heart and let the whole world know what I think. 
Um, but I do think that that's a, a trained behavior. I've, I've been working with the phrase we use comes from Proverbs, is control your spirit. It comes from the proverb, like a city that's broken into without any walls is the man who has no control over his own spirit. And so what I want to see my child doing is trying to gain control of their spirit. And so like right now, Talitha is not terribly good at it, but I see she tries. It can be for any number of things. She doesn't like what something happens. Serena says, put that down. You know, so it's not even limited to discipline. It can just be limited to the unhappiness. And Talitha needs to grow, and like any muscle, into somebody who every time she doesn't get what she wants, she doesn't lose it. And so I'll say, Talitha, no fuss. And we've been working on this for a while now, and she was terrible at that when we started. But I th- could discern, I think, she was trying to be quiet. She was, you know, they do that. Awesome, you're working with me. I can also tell when they're like, forget that, I'm unhappy and the world's going to know. And that is a bad character skill. I mean, I know teenagers like that. It's ugly. So I definitely think, it, you're asking a complex question, because it's the question of, is it simply some stoic ability like the Marines or the Special Forces would need to know that even if you get shot in the shoulder, you don't say a peep. That is not a required skill of all children, and that is not something every parent should be doing. That's something the, the, the Special Forces need. You know, like. On the other hand, can I experience displeasure and anguish and not like vomit out screams that the whole house can hear? Yeah, that's a really useful skill that I do think is important to train. The difference between the two, I think, is the key issue. But that is, we can talk more. That's as far as I'm going to go on our tangent. Okay, that, that's okay. fine. That good? Okay. Yep. Next. You killed it, Lee. <laughs> Just, um, let me, let me, if we, okay, if you guys don't, I got somewhere to go. If you, oh, one more chance for questions, because I got somewhere I want to go, if not. Oh, Matthew. Oh, hold on, microphone for posterity's sake. So this is just something I kind of want your opinion on. So we know that God has the ability to soften hearts and harden hearts, yes. that we're predestined and whatnot. What's your opinion on if, I know that, you know, God doesn't have to choose anyone for salvation because we all deserve death. Yeah. But what's to keep him from choosing everyone if he has the ability to? Because talks about that God loves all of us and desires us all to be saved and he has the ability to help us, to help everyone get there, then why doesn't he? Oh, let's ask an easy question. Okay. okay, let's go to Romans 9. That's, that is probably one of the most difficult emotional questions to ask. Difficult in that, yeah, let's put it really simply. I believe what I've been teaching, that, that God elects before the foundation of the world. God could elect everyone without exception. I don't believe he has and the question is, would it not be better? Or that be, you didn't say that. You put it in a more um, appropriate fashion. Why didn't he? But I'll, I'll put it in a bolder fashion, bolder than you said it. Wouldn't it be more loving, more merciful, better if he'd chosen everyone? That, that's what we can be tempted to think. And the answer we've got to come up with, I believe, is no. And that's the hard answer. But I, I, don't, think it does any, I don't think it does any good to dance around that objection and that, that answer. Here's the best answer biblically I've got in Romans 9 from Paul. Um, 
And admittedly, emotionally, this is the most difficult, I think, or one of the most difficult issues with predestination of the sovereignty of God. But you ask it plainly, I'll try to give you Paul's plain answer. It's a hard answer, but why? If the Bible asks it and addresses it, then why dance around it? Just pray that God gives us grace to believe and hear. So Romans 9. I'm in 1 Corinthians 9. Hold on. Romans 9. See, I do too busy talking. I'm not busy enough turning my Bible. Okay. That's probably true most days. Um, okay. Let's pick it up in 14. Well, we've got to pick it up in 6. Uh, we'll move through it. So, because so, you've got to track Paul's flow of thought. Otherwise, the hard things he says later in the chapter will seem like nuclear bombs going off. And there's, they're going to be hard regardless, but let me track the flow. Really, you've got to start at the end of 8. So Paul, at the end of 8, makes those wonderful promises, starting in 835, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he's emphasizing that if you're in Christ, nothing can separate you from that. Nothing can sever you from that. Death, nor height, nor... And he ends that wonderful um, verses 38, 39, at the end of chapter 8. And I think it's as though Paul expects or assumes an objection. Something like, yeah, Paul, that sounds good, but didn't God make similar promises to Israel? And look at them now. Sure looks like they've been cast off. How can I count on these promises, these gospel promises being sure? How can I count on my salvation being secure? How can I count on the fact that God will not ultimately cast me off when I look at Israel's current state, rejecting their Messiah and the gospel going to the Gentiles? And all of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is an extended answer to that objection. Put really simply in verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. That's what Paul is trying to defend. Because um, he says, um, verse 2, I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promise. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God, over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. Whatever you make of Israel's current state, it's not God breaking his promises. And that's what he's... That, that statement, that, that declaration in 6, I think, is what Paul is defending with all the big guns of predestination and Pharaoh and everything else is to substantiate God has not broken his word to Israel. So then, he then brings this stuff out. So then the first... And his answer is along these lines. Yes, God promised Abraham's descendants, but he didn't mean every last one of them. And so his first example is that Abraham has two kids, Ishmael and Isaac, and Isaac is the child of promise, not Ishmael. And then Isaac has twins in the womb, and God chooses one and not the other. That's Paul's trying to show. It should be clear that even though God promised to bless Abraham's descendants, he did not mean every single last one without exception. Because right out of the gate in the first two generations, you have this one, not this one, this one, not this one. And he makes that point emphatically in verse 10. But not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob, I love and Esau, I hate it. So that's, that's, that's the point he's trying to, he's trying to make. So then he moves on. 
He's assuming the objection. What then shall we say? And he doesn't assume it. He states it. Is there injustice on God's part? So let's just look at one example. Two twins could have chose both. He chose one. Is that unjust to God? Let's just make it really simple. One case. You know what I'm saying? So instead of just looking at the whole world, we'll look at one womb. Two kids in one womb. Jacob, not Esau. Is that unjust of God? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Which goes back to Exodus 34. Let's keep, our fin- keep your finger here in Romans 9, and we've got to go back to Exodus 34. And we've got 10 minutes to do this. I think we can pull it off if I can move quickly. And this is, this is one of the... If you go back, last year we did a five-part series on the Reformation, and the message on grace, saved by grace, uh, deals with this. I think we oftentimes misunderstand grace. Grace should be a far more amazing but also scary concept than I think we tend to think of it as. Because grace is God's freedom to, to be kind, to favor people as he sees fit without any accounting, without anyone to say, what have you done? Without anyone to say, give a reason for why you do it other than his good pleasure. And the first time God starts to reveal who he is in words, that's the first thing he goes to. What I mean by revealing himself in words is so he talks to Abraham, but we never get any indication that he tells Abraham a whole lot about himself. Abraham learns about this God through the stories he's heard and through God's activity with him. He learns God's faithful and he learns God keeps his word. But we're not aware of, maybe he does, we're not aware of God saying, Abraham, let me tell you about myself, right? So the first time we start learning about who God is is the burning bush. I am who I am. We get God's covenant name. I'd I'd say that's the first time God starts um, unpacking or uh, revealing propositionally who he is. He reveals who he is through action prior to that. But at the burning bush, we get his name, Yahweh, I am who I am. That's the first big, like, and you get self-existence. He's the self-existent one. He is the one who is, right? So then Moses is up in the mount, and the people have just corrupted themselves. The priesthood has just corrupted itself with the golden calf, Aaron. And he climbs up in the mountain. He intercedes for the people. And he pleads, and the Lord relents, and he doesn't destroy them. Then he pleads that God would travel with them, and God says he will. And then he says, show me your glory. In chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, show me your glory. So now, all we've got in the, when I say propositional, I mean spoken words about who God is. There's, there's, no, there's, there's no, that I'm aware of, other than I am who I am, God saying, here's who I am. I could be wrong. But uh, Moses says, show me your glory. What's the first thing God tells him that's at the heart of his glory? He said, I'll make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name. And the Lord, the Lord, and I'll be gracious to him, I'll be gracious. And I'll show mercy to whom I show mercy. And so Paul's point in Romans 9 is to say, don't forget, the very first thing God tells us about himself is I'm self-existent. I am who I am. The second thing God tells us about himself, I mercy whom I mercy. I am free to mercy whom I mercy. So he, right out of the gate, expresses his freedom, his prerogative, to mercy whom he mercies. And we learn elsewhere that grace or mercy has to be free. It can't be owed. And so we can never constrain God. We can never say God ought to be merciful. God ought to be gracious. We're talking about square circles. Um, So now, let's go back to Romans. So Paul's point there in Romans 9 is this is no new teaching, God's freedom in 
grace. And when I say by frightening is we are totally helpless to it. God mercies whom he mercies. You can't force his hand. Roman Catholicism comes up with a, con, con, what's their group category? They come up with congruent works, things that sort of make God do things. But no, the, the biblical teaching is that God is free to mercy whom he mercies. And so that's Paul's point. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? By no means, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, and don't miss depends. He's not saying human actions and agency have no significance, but final depending, God. So it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So let's use an example. Pharaoh, would it have been better for God to have mercy on Pharaoh? Well, here's one answer. If he had, he would not have been able to um, show his power and get his name out to all the earth. In fact, the, the showdown with Pharaoh is how God brings Rahab to faith. God, one of the consequences of God defeating Egypt so cataclysmically and so, so vastly is that word spreads all the way to Canaan so that a Canaanite prostitute in the walled city of Jericho hears of it and commits treason against her people and, and takes in terrorists and, and dissidents and enemy combatants, houses them and sends them out again because she's cast her lot with the God who defeated Pharaoh and gave the people of Israel the land. So God has very good purposes in making this name for himself and making his name great. And it says here, that's why he hardens Pharaoh. So Rahab would say, no, it would not have been better for God to not have hardened Pharaoh. Rahab, for one, would say, nope, I am very thankful God made a name for himself that way. Um, So let me go on. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Which is then, of course, the next logical question we raise. And Paul's answer isn't terribly satisfying, at least here. Who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the, the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And then we get to 22. Now, this is not an explicit statement. It's close. Paul's saying, what if... But here's Paul's, at the very least, suggested answer for why God does not elect everyone. Now he's saying, what if? So I don't want him to say, this is absolutely the case. But he's saying, what if? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, similarly to what he desired to do with Pharaoh, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, And the answer to the question is, if he's the potter, what if we have nothing to say? Now, Paul doesn't, he comes short of saying that is the answer. What if that's the answer? But when an apostle says what if, it's more than when I say what if. Right? (laughs) Right? And no, no, we're on, this is heavy stuff, and so I don't want to just sort of trance in lightly. You know what I mean? But these are, Paul... I also don't want to pretend the Bible doesn't look at these questions. Paul looks at these questions explicitly. His answers are hard. And they're basically, he's God, you're not, trust him. He's got good purposes. He's got a plan. It's not chaos. 
is good. And for the people of Israel who, who were delivered because of the cataclysmic showdown in Egypt, they resonate with, yeah, that was, that was good that Pharaoh was hardened. It was good that it happened that way because that's how we got delivered and that's how we got out. But this is, this is the closest place where Paul deals with that question explicitly. Because for his purposes, it is better. I mean, the short answer is it is better, ultimately, that some are saved and not all. You've got to conclude that. Otherwise, God is impotent. If, if, if there's a better outcome that hasn't happened, you've got to say, why didn't it happen? Why couldn't God do it? If it's better, it's wiser. It's more righteous. If it's more loving, then neither God's imperfect because he wanted the lesser plan, or he's impotent because he couldn't achieve the better plan. You have to. You, there's no. There's no dodging that conclusion. Either God's plan is subpar and he's not as wise or as good as you think, or he's not as powerful as you think. I mean, if under any conception, if if all this is this is this type of philosophical argument is what drives people to universalism. It's what drives Rob Bell and others to universalism is to get God off the hook because you look at it through and you either say either his plan is subpar or his power is subpar. And I think Paul is saying no, maybe the best outcome, the best outcome, is both vessels in existence. It's hard because it doesn't put us at the center because it's certainly not best for Pharaoh, right? But if the, if the story is about a father who wants to glorify his son and he wants to have people praising him for his glory and his salvation in a context, in a backdrop where he's saved from something, then perhaps in that picture, you see how it's better. But it, it's, it's hard, hard stuff. But you ask a hard question, Matthew, and I respect you enough not to give you a soft answer. It's heavy, heavy stuff. Um, and, and I get the context in which you're asking, too. But that's, there may be other places, but that's the most explicit place I know of where Paul looks at that question. Why are not all vessels prepared for, for, for grace? Um, Jake in the back with Simeon. Doesn't it allow also for all of God's attributes to be fully magnified? Yeah. That's Edwards. That's Edwards's. Well, actually, let's go back to Ephesians and call it a day. Go to Ephesians. Edwards um, draws out that implication from Ephesians 1, a passage we've already looked at, and we'll, we'll close here. And yeah, this is, I mean, I, I know I'm giving an, I know it's easy for me sitting in my chair, drinking my tea to give this answer. Um, and I get, I think I get at least some of the implications of it. It's, it's, it's hard, heavy stuff. Um, look at 1.6. God's purpose in choosing, okay, we'll go back to five, one, five, and six. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, to the praise of his glorious grace. So if grace is God giving um, good things to people who are undeserving, and if God's intention is that his grace be praised, Edwards, in his, in his book, um, Jonathan Edwards, the, the ultimate end for which God created the world, makes a statement that I'll horribly paraphrase, in the, asking why did God allow sin into the world? I mean, these are the other big heavy questions. Why sin? Why allow the devil to go into the garden? Why not keep the, why, wouldn't it be better if God would not allow the devil into the garden? Wouldn't that have been better? Why did God let him go in there? And Edwards says something like, 
it would not be fitting in eternity for, the, for one attribute of God to shine brighter than the rest or for one aspect of his character to be un, unknown to the creature. How can the creation know that God is gracious and merciful if there isn't need for mercy? Now that's, that's an extrapolation. That's, that's going one step beyond what that says. What we know from this, God intends for his grace to be praised. That God wants that to happen. He intends I'm gracious, and I want people to see and experience and enjoy that. So you then take the next step of extrapolation and say, okay, therefore, a context whereby that can be seen seems like a necessary ingredient. Now, granted, I've stepped off the edge of the text, I'm supposing, but it's not a huge leap. And so it it appears as though God intends, here's the way I put it, God intends and desires that a redeemed people know him fully. And for that redeemed people to know him fully, they need to know all of who he is, not some of who he is. And so some of the things that happen, if you go back to Romans 9, to put on display, I'm holy, and I'm righteous, and there's part of the story, and part of the creative order shows that about God. I'm merciful, and I'm long-suffering, part of the creative order shows that. That's, it, it puts God at the center of the picture, and it puts the display of his glory and his attributes to a redeemed humanity at the center. It's, it's heavy, heavy stuff, Matthew, admittedly. But that's the best answer I got for you. And on that, we'll cut to the break and we can talk some more. Thank you very much.